Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, or excuse me, John chapter 2, John chapter 2 this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your transformative work in our lives, that you're the one who takes water and turns it into wine, that you bring joy where things are mundane and ordinary. We thank you for your passion for us as your people, that you desire for there to be purity and not for there to be corruption. We thank you that you're the discerner of our hearts, that you know us. There's no fooling you. We believe in you, we trust in you, we trust that you'll use your word in our lives. And we want to make much of you this morning, Jesus. In your name, amen. One of the joys of being a pastor is being involved in weddings. It usually begins with a couple in the church uh, approaching us with bright eyes, letting us know that they're engaged, wanting to get into premarital counseling. And premarital counseling is such a joy talking over the, the basics of, of marriage from the scriptures. And then it comes to the long-awaited day. And you can feel the, the tension in the room from the bride and the groom. Normally, as the pastor, you come up separately with the groom, and his hands are shaking a bit nervously. And then the bride comes down the aisle, and it's a beautiful celebration. And standing right here as a pastor, you get a front-row view of what is, is taking place. But they don't always go as planned. <laughs> How many of you in your wedding, somewhere either in the celebration, in the ceremony, or the reception, something wasn't just quite right, or something just went completely wrong? A couple of things that I remember that weren't quite right in wedding ceremonies was we were doing a wedding in the foyer. That's a great place for a wedding. Just beautiful lighting and, and the, the size of the foyer. Midway through the ceremony, one of the bridegrooms, he starts to wobble a little bit, and he faints. And thankfully, his dad was sitting on the front row and was able to catch him before he hit the concrete floor, you know? So that was, whew, he, he's okay. But that wasn't the worst of it, believe it or not, is I introduced the, the couple for the very first time, and for them to walk down the aisle, and here they go with some speed and ardor that they're going to take on the world in their marriage, and then all of a sudden, you see the bride's head go like this, whiplash, and I realized that my foot was on her veil. <laughs> it's like, nope, you're not going anywhere, right? So I lifted up my foot, and then off, off, off they went, right? And then a year ago, in October, I was doing a wedding for, for a couple, and I just was a little bit off my game uh, that day. It was on a Saturday morning, and I got there, and I could just feel that I was a little bit off, and the wedding was taking place at a location that, that I wasn't uh, used to, was, and a lot of those little factors. And the wedding, the wedding begins, and the groom gets a bloody nose as the bride is coming down the aisle. And believe it or not, that's not the first time that's happened at a wedding that I've officiated. So, you know, things just weren't going smoothly. And weddings really go like dominoes. One thing goes from the next and boom, 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 boom. And so the wedding gets done and I pronounce them husband and wife. And I'll never forget it. I'm standing there at this church and hey, you're husband and wife. And, and normally that's the real exciting part and everybody claps. 
and they don't move. They just stand there and they look at me. And at that moment, I realized something is wrong. Something has gone wrong. And the groom, his name's Ben, uh, he whispers to me and he goes, you forgot the rings. <laughs> so I just skipped that step in, in the, the ceremony. And so what do you do at that moment? You just own it and you're like, hey, I, I, I forgot the rings here. And so we're going to go ahead and do the rings. Take two, your husband and wife, and here you go, right? And they were so gracious in it, but I just felt terrible. I was walking to the car, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I, that I forgot the rings. I kept telling Amber, I can't believe I forgot the rings. Well, in our Bible study this morning, this wedding ceremony doesn't go quite right. But thankfully, Jesus is there to make the difference. He's, he's the game changer in this uh, ceremony, in this celebration. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The third day, we don't know, is in reference to what. It just tells us the third day. Probably the third day since Philip and Nathaniel had started following the Lord. The wedding is in Canaan of Galilee in the Galilee region. It was near Nazareth. The key is that Jesus' mother is there. Mary is there, and she has a position of responsibility in this wedding. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. This was a great decision that the bride and groom made to invite Christ to the wedding. And if you're considering getting married or in the process of engagement, don't forget to invite Jesus to your wedding. You know, that's the most important part is to say, Jesus, you are the guest of honor. We want you to be present in this marriage ceremony. Also, it's significant that Jesus in his earthly life, takes the time to come to a wedding ceremony. He shows the value of marriage simply by his presence being there. His presence there is validating the importance of a wedding ceremony. A question that I get from time to time is, is it necessary for us to get a marriage license and to have a wedding ceremony? And I think that it is for a couple of reasons. One is that God has put together governmental systems. Romans 13 says God has set up authorities. Now, as long as the government's not asking us to do something that's contrary uh, to scripture, we want to honor the government. So in the eyes of the state, uh, in order to be married, you need a marriage license. So you should get a marriage license and, and go through that uh, process. In the eyes of the government, be husband and wife. But even more importantly is we see that God calls marriage a covenant. In Malachi chapter 3, it refers to the wife of your covenant. When you enter into marriage, it's a covenant before God and before your spouse. A covenant is a pledge. It's an oath. It's the strongest agreement. And so it's important to have a ceremony to say, look, I'm committing before God, before you, before family and friends that this is a lifelong uh, commitment. So God creates marriage. In Genesis, we see with Adam and Eve, and here Jesus affirms marriage by coming to this place, to this wedding, for this celebration. In verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Most of the time, the marriage feast would last for seven days. The family and friends would come and they would spend this whole week celebrating with the bride and groom. Could you imagine the stress and the work of that, right? The amount of work that goes into a short ceremony and the reception that follows and the food and the preparation that would take place 
to have everyone come together for this seven-day celebration. And at some point on this feast, they run out of wine. And wine was the symbolic of joy. You know, when the nation of Israel would have wine in the Old Testament, it was symbolizing a celebration in their lives. The, the, the wine at this marriage feast was symbolizing that this was not just a normal occasion. This wasn't something that you would just have a glass of water at, that you would, you would have wine. Not to excess, but for the purpose of celebration. So this is a big deal, and this is a faux pas for them at this point that they had run out of wine. And for some reason, it seems to be Mary's problem. She has taken on the role of having some responsibility in this wedding. We don't know how she's tied to the wedding, whether it's family or a close friend, but she seems to be kind of in that wedding coordinator type of position. She knows that Jesus can do something about it. Of all people, she knows that this is God in human flesh because of the virgin birth. She's watching Christ throughout his life, waiting for Christ to reveal who he really is. And she brings this to Jesus, in essence, saying, this would be a really good time. (laughs) Not only would it solve my problem, not only would it solve this problem of there's no wine at the wedding, but everybody would know who you are. Mary may not respond to everything quite perfectly in this story, but we've got to give her credit that she brings her problem to Jesus. You know, that hit me as I was studying this and reading it and praying about it, is she brought her problem to Jesus. And how many times do we go through difficulty and for a variety of reasons we don't bring it to the Lord? Either we think we can solve it ourselves or maybe we think he's too busy or he really doesn't care. But to her credit, she brings this to Jesus and she says, here's the problem. There's no wine. We've run out. In verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, from our culture, this doesn't sound very polite, does it? Right? But this is a term of endearment. Woman was a term of endearment. Jesus uses it when he dies on the cross. He sees his mom and cares for her, knowing that she's going to be alone, and links her with John the disciple, and he addresses her as woman once again. Now, guys, don't try this, you know? Just because Jesus pulled this off, you cannot pull this off. If you look at your wife and you go, woman, my time has not yet come, right? It's, it's not the hour for me to help out with, with that, you know. No, don't, don't even go there, right? Jesus, in essence, is saying, look, it's not time for my glory to be revealed. And why is this trouble my concern? Jesus was living on a divine timetable We'll see that as we continue through John. Towards the end of his life, right before the crucifixion, he'll say, my time has come. The the hour has come that the Father is going to glorify the Son through the crucifixion of Christ. It was the cross that was going to reveal the glory of God. What Jesus is saying to Mary is, it's not the right time for this to take place. In verse 15, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. (laughs) She's persistent, isn't she? She's like, I'm not going to take no for an answer, turns to the servants and say, well, whatever he says to do, do it. Now, Christ obviously is not forced to do this. He could have still said no. He could have told the servants to go get a sandwich and move on with their day, right? But Jesus chooses to go ahead and honor 
his mother's request and solve this problem with there being no wine. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So here we have these huge pots of water containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And the scriptures tell us they're for the purpose of the purification of the Jews. The Jews would have a ritual, religious way of washing their hands before and after they ate. And they felt that it was to the degree of sin if you didn't wash your hands in the the proper way. That's what these pots were, were used for. Jesus is using these pots, yes, because there's a lot of water here, but also I think it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus is going to transform this religious system. That we're not going to be under the law anymore. You think of Moses who turned water into blood, judgment. Jesus is going to take water and turn it into joy. He's, he's the game changer. He's the transforming agent. Not only does he bring us into the new covenant, but he frees us from this religious spirit that adds to the word of God. They took the law and the commands, and then on top of it, they made all of these religious trappings for the children of Israel. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to do a new work. I'm going to put new wine into new new wineskins. No longer are you going to be under this system of purification. Now, by all means, wash your hands for health purposes. My goodness, colds are going around. But whether you wash your hands or not has nothing to do with your relationship with God. Amen? Right? Jesus is very clear that he was after the heart, not the way that you would wash your hands. On a practical note, this also speaks to the degree of the miracle. Yes, the focus of the miracle is that water could become wine, but also this is dirty water. This is where everybody's been going to wash their hands. You want to drink out of that? No thanks, right? But Jesus purifies it and makes it to where it's this amazing glass of of wine. In verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. These servants don't know that Jesus is God, don't know that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is a tough spot for them to be in. Boss lady, Mary, said, you do whatever Jesus says. And now Jesus is saying, fill up these water pots to the brim. That's no problem. Let's do that. Go to the well, get the water, a lot of gallons of water to bring in to make sure they're, they're full. But now you need to take this water, this dirty water, to the master of the feast and serve him uh, this water. It's pretty risky, right? It could make these servants look really bad, and to their credit, they do it. And there's no argument on their behalf. In verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and didn't know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So the bridegroom, he gets a compliment. It's like, hey, this is, this is great. The master of the feast is saying, everybody always serves their best wine first. And as the feast goes on, then they serve the cheaper, more inferior wine. But you've saved the best for last. 
We don't know for sure if the bridegroom knew of the difficulties. The master of the feast wasn't aware of the miracle, but the servants were aware of the miracle that took place. We served this guy water, and at the end of it, he's like, wow, this is the best wine I've, I've ever tasted, and he gives a, a compliment. Jesus takes what's ordinary, and he makes it extraordinary. This speaks of the joy that he wants to bring into our lives. It's a tremendous miracle. It's the first miracle that's ever recorded of Christ. In the gospel, there's 35 miracles, and this is the first one. John only records seven miracles in this gospel for the purpose of pointing us to faith in Christ and through believing in him that we would have life in his name. In verse 11, this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What's the purpose of miracles? To manifest the glory of God, to lead to greater faith in Jesus. If we get impressed with the miracle and it doesn't result in greater faith in Jesus, we've missed it altogether. And there's many that would experience these miracles and it wouldn't result in a true, genuine faith in Christ. They were simply attracted to the miracle that was, was taking place. But for the disciples that are watching this take place, remember, they're invited to the wedding as well. They know of the difficulty. They know that there's no wine, and they see God transform the water into wine. It causes them to have greater faith in Christ. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. This is the breaking point that Jesus has with his family. We don't see him with his family near as much in the rest of the Gospels. Before we move on to the Passover and Jesus cleansing the temple, let's consider Jesus taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. Is it coincidence that God did this miracle in the context of marriage, at a marriage ceremony. Would you say that sometimes, apart from the Lord, that marriage can get a little bit mundane? How do couples genuinely tend to start in their dating and their engagement? With a lot of excitement, with a lot of emotion for each other, a lot of love uh, for, for each other, a lot of physical attraction. It's like, oh, you're hot. No, you're hot, right? Well, we better get married, right? It's like, oh, we, we just get along so well. We've got so many things in common. No way, your favorite color's green too. That must be a sign that we're supposed to get married. I've always been looking for someone who also liked to drink coffee. We both like coffee. This, this is it, right? And so you've got the physical attraction taking place and you know these personalities that are starting to gel. And what they don't tell you in marriage is it takes about five years of marriage before you're actually really honest with your likes and dislikes, right? And so this is, this is taking place, but what often is neglected is the spiritual component when people are deciding who to marry. Does this person love Christ more than they love me? Are they committed to Christ? Were they committed to Christ before I ever met them? And then as marriage goes forward, it's easy for us to leave Christ out of our marriages. And it's not intentional. You know, we're talking to believers that believe in Christ, that follow Christ, but the physical's there, the, the personal's there, the doing life is there, 
trying to figure out the bills and make sure the groceries get purchased. By the way, I figured out a really good time to go to Costco, but I can't tell you guys because then you'll show up and we'll ruin it. <laughs> so, so Friday night is a good time to go to Costco. Everybody else is out doing other things and you can actually get in and out of there with qu- not quite so many lines. Tr- try it out. It, it's a blessing. But you're just trying to figure out all those things, right? And before you know it, you go, man, we're not praying together like we once would. Or, you know what, we've never prayed together. That's something that we've never really discovered in, in our marriage. Maybe because of schedules, it's, it's hard to find time to be in church together. It's, it's hard to find time to be able to share what you're learning in, in God's word uh, together. And what really brings people together, even more than the physical and more than our, our personalities, though those are important, the physical attraction is important, to fill up each other's personal tanks is, is important. It's Christ. It's sharing Christ together. Remember in Ecclesiastes a few months ago when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says the benefit of two. But then all of a sudden he talks about a third element. He says a rope that has three strands is not easily broken. And that third strand is Christ as we wrap each other around God. So Christ in your marriage can take what's ordinary and make it extraordinary. He can make it special. Not that there won't be difficulties and there won't be challenges, but you go, wow, something has changed here because we're focusing on the Lord together. Now, I know that some of you, you're saying, well, my spouse is not willing to do that. Maybe they're not a believer or they're not interested in in coming to church. Well, you focus on the Lord. You you put him first in, in that place. Attempt praying together. I don't know why it's one of the hardest things to do as married couples, but you can feel so weird about praying together. The more you do it, the easier it'll, it'll become. It doesn't have to be this long 25-minute prayer for it to count. It can be 25 seconds, right? As you lay down and go to sleep together at the end of the day, grab your spouse's hand and say, let's, let's pray together. When you're leaving in the morning, huddle up and say, hey, let, let's, let's pray together. Go a step beyond of praying at the meals uh, together. Share what God is doing in your life. Maybe read through a book of the Bible together. But it's that spiritual component that's going to take what's mundane and make it extraordinary. But also, if you're not married, life becomes ordinary, doesn't it? If you're single, life becomes ordinary. And I would imagine that your singleness can be a drain. Your singleness can can be at a place where you're starting to go, man, I'm, I'm just tired of doing life alone. The same answer, it's Christ. It's looking to Christ. Christ is the one who puts the joy in life, amen? Whether you're married or you're single, and a lot of times it's easy to look to the human relationships to be the wine in life, to be the joy in life. But Jesus is meant to be the joy in life. In his presence is the fullness of joy. For us to live as Christ and as we put Christ in the forefront of our lives and connect to him as being divine, then we begin to experience the reality of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is making a statement that he is able to take what's mundane and make it special, that he can put joy into our hearts and into our lives and into our relationships. Let's look at verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was a feast once a year that God gave to the children of Israel to remember their deliverance 
from bondage out of Egypt. And it was customary for the Jews to come up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Now, geographically, Jesus is going down. He's going from Galilee down to Jerusalem. But whenever the Jews are traveling to Jerusalem, no matter where you're coming from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Instead of there being the opportunity for worship, people were getting ripped off. God required the families to come and offer a sacrifice. But we find now that there's money changers that are doing their business, selling different sacrifices, saying, well, this has been a temple-approved sacrifice and charging a crazy rate. And what's the worst about this is they were ripping people off based on their commitment and their desire to worship. So it's okay, here you want to worship, but here's a barrier for your worship. Your lamb that you brought isn't good enough. Here, here's a temple-approved lamb, and it's going to cost you all, all of this money. And the people were left with no choice but yet to fall into uh, this system. In verse 15, And when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers and overturned the tables. And poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. This would cause a stampede. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you've got sheep, you've got oxen, and Jesus gets a whip. Why does he use a whip? Because the whip is going to stir up the cattle, and the cattle are going to run off. Do you picture Jesus with a whip taking care of business? I mean, we picture Jesus being meek and mild, and the lamb who willingly died upon the cross for us, but he's also a warrior. He's also a lion. Nobody messes with Jesus. Nobody comes up to him and is like, hey, what are you doing with a whip? Not today, buddy. And this is affecting their money. Now, I'm imagining here, this is a little bit of Eric commentary, but I would think they probably had some security at the temple, don't you? I bet things got out of hand every once in a while at the temple. I bet you they had some troublemakers at the temple. I bet you they had some guys that could get things back into an orderly state. But none of those guys even dared challenge Christ because of his power and his authority. And this is an expression of Jesus' righteous anger. That he made the whip. It's not an anger that's out of control. A lot of times when we get angry, we're out of control. Jesus isn't out of control. He's not sinning in his anger. He takes the time to make a whip. This is a great example of the true definition of meekness, which is power under control. And the reason that Jesus is doing this is because God's people are getting ripped off. Righteous anger is not when we are getting taken advantage of, but when other people are getting taken advantage of. In Malachi 3 verse 1, there's this prophecy of the Lord coming to the temple suddenly. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And as you go on to read in Malachi 3, it's a purifying work that the Lord does when he comes to his temple. 
This is not the first time that Jesus has come to the temple. We know that Christ was at the temple when he was 12. He would come to the temple throughout his life through these feasts. And I'm sure this bothered him every time. And now as he begins his public ministry, he says, all right, we're going to deal with worship. And we're going to get worship into its proper place. In verse 16, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. The doves was the poor man's offering. So even the poor were getting ripped off. The religious leaders were there to serve the poor, to help protect the poor. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's heart for the poor. But instead, the poor are getting taken advantage of. So Christ says to those guys, you need to get out of here. And he addresses the heart of the issue. He says, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise where people are getting ripped off. They had forgotten, the leaders, that this was God's house. That this wasn't their show. This wasn't their deal. This wasn't their agenda. They weren't in control. In fact, they were accountable to the Lord. And it seems that the enemy and man's sinful flesh tends to corrupt worship because it's so important. Corporate worship, gathering together as a body of believers, is very dear to the Lord and it's important to us. And it seems like throughout church history, leadership tends to get off track. Leadership tends to miss God's mission and God's heart. And it seems over time, if there isn't accountability to the Lord, it can become more about money. That's what it's become for these guys. It's not about worship. It's about money. And before you know it, church leaders, pastors, and elders, they're more about counting money. How many dimes are coming in? How many dollars are coming in? And how many butts are in seats? They're counting butts and dimes. They're like, okay, we've got a healthy church because we've got a lot of dimes coming in and there's a lot of people in, in seats. So is a small church a healthy church or is a large church a healthy church? Neither. It has nothing to do with how many people are coming through the door. A healthy church is one where God is being worshipped, where people aren't getting taken advantage of, where the word of God is being taught and people are being loved and people are being fed. So please pray for us as pastors, you know? We're, we're not above messing this all up, right? And we see this taking place in a lot, of, a lot of churches of pastors sinning and hurting God's people and taking advantage of God's people. And the enemy loves that when that takes place. So we're praying for you, but please pray for us as well. Let's pray for church leaders throughout the country that it wouldn't become a, a business, and they would remember this is the Father's house, not the buildings. The building is not the Father's house, but the people is the habitation of God. In verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. The disciples remember Psalms 69 verse 9 that says it's the zeal, it's the passion for God's house that consumes Jesus. It's because of his love for the people that this is eating him up. So let's ponder this for just a moment. Jesus is the game changer and his transforming power takes it from corruption to purity, from corrupt to pure. 
Do you think this is a, an, an easy way to start your ministry? If Jesus wants to make friends and win fans, let's go into the temple and turn some tables over, right? He wasn't concerned with gaining the following. He was concerned with glorifying the Father. And just like pastoral leaders and elders, there needs to be a purity. I think also in our lives individually, sometimes it's good to step back and say, hey, what are we doing here? We don't come to the temple anymore, but we gather together as believers and we say, how important is this to the Lord? How important is this in in my life as well? And am I really preparing to meet with the Lord and to worship him in spirit and in truth? Or has this just become something that I do? This is just part of, of my routine, and that's good. It's good to have worship be part of our routine, but to be reminded, Lord, is there anything in my worship that has become corrupt, that's maybe become selfish, and you want to move it to that place of purity? So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? What gives you the authority? You better back this up if you're coming in here and destroying our gig that we've got going on. And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Herod had been doing a remodel on the temple that took 46 years. And here Jesus is saying, if you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. But here's the key, verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. What Christ is saying is the greatest proof of my authority and my deity is my resurrection. Everything hinges in our faith on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, he's not who he said he was. But since he did rise from the dead, he's God. So Christ is saying, when you see me rise from the dead, you know that I have all authority to come in here and cleanse the temple. If for some reason you're examining the claims of Christ and you're not sure if Christ is God, please examine the resurrection. Look at the historical evidence of the resurrection. Because if Christ is risen, then you've got a decision to make. Because then he's backed up his claim that he is is Lord. I love verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The disciples had no idea what this meant until after the resurrection. And then it dawned on them. Oh yeah, Christ predicted this, that Passover, when he turned over the tables. He said that the temple would be destroyed and he would raise it again in three days. He was speaking of his body. And the reason that I love this is sometimes as we invest in a relationship with the Lord, spending time with him and reading his word, we don't understand it. Been, ever been there? Like, I really have no idea what this is saying. Or we completely forget about it. The disciples have long forgotten about this statement of Christ. But as we move forward in our lives and we move forward in our journey with the Lord, then all of a sudden we remember that verse. We remember that teaching. We remember that thing that confused us so much and we go, now I get it. I understand. But if we don't take the time to spend with the Lord, And in his word, there's no opportunity for the light bulb to go on. It's like when you're in school. If you're not in class, even though you may not have understood it in class, there's no opportunity for later on for the light bulb uh, to go on. 
So don't be discouraged. Invest time in the word. There, there's times when I do my devotions, and it honestly does feel like Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. I, I shut my Bible, and by dinner time, if you said, what did you read in your devotions? I go, I have no idea. I completely forgot, or I don't understand what, what that was talking about. But then there's many times down the road where I go, okay, now I get it. Now the light bulb has, has come on. In verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. What motivated them to believe was the signs. And many do believe. So we've seen one miracle that Jesus did with turning the water to wine John records that one, but there was also more signs that were done specifically in Jerusalem during this Passover feast. And you contrast the faith from verse 23 to verse 22. Verse 22 is they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. But in verse 23, the multitude is believing because they've seen the miraculous. In verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Christ as the game changer, he's taking things from superficial to genuine. And what we find in the multitude is there's a superficial faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know that it was superficial? Because as we continue to read in John, by the time we get to chapter 6, the multitude stops following Christ because Christ is unwilling to be their king. They want a king. And they're like, this is great. He'll be the bread king. He's just supernaturally fed us. This is going to be wonderful. Christ in that moment also gives them tough teachings about his death. They're like, we don't want a suffering king. We want the miraculous king that does miracles for us. And they reject the Lord. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are you going to take off too? And Peter responds, where would we go? For you alone have the words of life. So Jesus doesn't commit himself to the masses because he knows that they don't have genuine faith. What's fascinating is Christ's statement here where he doesn't need anyone to tell us, tell him about man. Sometimes we need information about others. A jury or a judge, as they're trying to sort out if someone is guilty or innocent, they're going to need input, they're going to need evidence, they're going to need more information. God doesn't need your spouse or your kids or your neighbors or your co-workers to tell God about you because he already knows us. And that's really comforting, but it's also really convicting, isn't it? God doesn't look at the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. Jesse was asked by God, or Samuel was asked by God to go to Jesse's house to anoint the new king of Israel. And of course, here comes Jesse's oldest son, and he's tall, dark, and handsome, great leadership skills. Samuel must have been thinking, this has to be the next king of Israel. What did God say? Nope. And you go through all the sons of Jesse, and finally, Samuel asks a tough question, did you have another son? Because God keeps saying no to all these sons. And Jesse's like, well, now that you mention it, uh, there's this red-haired kid out with the sheep. David was such an afterthought that he wasn't even invited to the meeting. Samuel asked for all the sons, and nobody sent a text to David. You know? 
There's no way that God is going to choose David. But God looks at the heart. And it's at that moment that God speaks and says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And the reason this is comforting is sometimes when we don't fit into the world's mold, when we're rejected because of our appearance, well, God looks at the heart. But where it's convicting is the fact when our hearts are wrong, that God sees our heart. There's no playing games with God. There's no just being able to keep it on a superficial level with God. And he's always desiring the heart. Possibly if you've never received Christ as your Savior, maybe you've on a superficial level examined the things of Christ. Maybe you can even articulate the gospel, but you know in your heart You've never believed that he's God, that he never died for your sins. You've never committed yourself to Christ. And this morning, as we wrap up, to be able to say, I want to surrender to Christ. I want to truly surrender my life to him. I hope this morning that we can stand in awe of Jesus as the game changer, that he can take what is ordinary and make it extraordinary, that he can take what's corrupt in our worship and he can make it pure. That he can take us from a superficial level to a genuine level because the outcome of all of those things is joy. The outcome of all of those things is the transforming power of Christ in our lives. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the wine. You're the joy. You're the vine. And for us this morning where maybe the marriage relationship has gotten ordinary or even broken or other relationships and we're just grinding through life, that you would take the water and you would turn it to wine. God, where our worship has been corrupt, Lord, would you help us as the pastors here at RMC to be upright before you and to keep the main thing, the main thing, to never make worship about merchandise or money or selfish gain. Lord, we pray for the pastors in our community that you would refresh them, that you would encourage them, give them fresh vision of you and direction for their churches. We pray that there would be a a real spiritual revival that would take place in our community and throughout our country. And we do thank you that you want something that's genuine instead of superficial. That we could press in and press beyond just the trappings of a relationship, the appearance of a relationship, but a genuine relationship with you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.